how not to screw up your kids' podcast. So pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat, and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 14, and today I'm sharing my own personal journey um, of my childhood. And I think it's particularly relevant because it relates to why I do what I do and why I do it the way that I do it. So the purpose of this is I really want to help you as parents to be able to understand from a child's perspective how they experience certain aspects of their childhood and you know some of you already know some aspects of my own particular childhood but this isn't a podcast where I want you to be sitting there thinking oh goodness me Mary Ann had such a difficult period of time it's really a case of if I share with you the perspective as a child what I went through I'm hoping that it gives you a bit of an insight I'm hoping that it allows you to consider what you might be able to do as a parent how you might be able to help your child And also, more importantly, how children are just so brilliant at masking and and covering up and saying that they're fine when they're really not. It is really my mission, my goal, my passion that as parents and also for those who are educators, that we focus on our children's emotional well-being as a priority and don't always take things as they appear to be from our children at face value. I really want us to go deeper, to delve deeper, to encourage our children to talk more about things because ultimately it is my heartfelt view that children who are confident and whose emotional needs are met are primed and ready to have the best lives, so much so than when we focus specifically on academics at the expense of everything else. So I'm going to share my journey. And what I will do almost as a caveat at the beginning is obviously I'm 52 now at the time of sharing this story. And obviously it's my view of my childhood. So it may not be factually accurate in every sense because obviously it's my view. But that's also important for us to remember as parents is that when our children talk to us about their emotions and their experiences of situations that have happened, they may not be truths as you may look at them objectively, but they are your child's truths. And so it's really important that we validate and that we acknowledge those. So I'm going to get started and delve deep. So for those of you who may not know, I was uh, born in Egypt in a place called Heliopolis, which is just outside Cairo. And at the age of about five and a half, six, we moved, we emigrated from Egypt to England. My understanding is that we had been given a choice of America and England. And originally we were going to America. And then at the last minute, my father changed his mind. And so we came to England and I am one of three children. I have an older brother who's seven years older than me. And I have a sister who's younger than me by two and a bit years And I did have another sister who I think sadly died in her sort of toddler years from meningitis, hence why there's such a big age gap between my brother and I. So my father was a doctor and my mother had qualified as a teacher but wasn't working. She'd sort of stayed home and looked after us. So we moved to England and I have very vivid memories of, I don't really feel that my English was terribly good. I remember sort of talking in Arabic a lot. I had started school in Egypt for a short time 
So I have some memories of that, but not huge amount of memories, if I'm honest, of my time living in Egypt as a child. I remember my grandma very, very vividly. I've got very fond memories of her. So we moved to England. I was a typical middle child, typical people pleasing. And as far as I can remember, had quite a, we'd moved a few times as my father was sort of working his way up, I guess, in terms of being a doctor. And we finally settled in terms of long term in a beautiful city called Salisbury, where at the time there were two hospitals and my father was a senior registrar. And I had very happy memories of my primary school. It was a state Catholic primary school run by Sister Bernadette, the headmistress. I remember it being in year six. And by that point, you were allowed to make tea uh, for the teachers at break times and you would wheel the trolley in. Uh, So again, very, very fond memories of my primary school years and felt very happy and very settled. And then I, because I live where we live, we have a the 11 plus and I took the entrance exam to the grammar school, which we still have still in Salisbury. And I got, I passed and I went and had my first, I'd started in year seven. It was my first term at secondary school when my father died suddenly and I have got very very vivid memories of that and the vivid memories are that I had come back from school very excited it was in the November so I started in September so it would have been after half term I came back it was a Monday because we'd spent the weekend with dad but this point my father had been made a consultant and had moved to Newcastle where we would then go and spend weekends with him. We were going to move there in the December, ready for the next academic term at my new school. So I was only due to be at the grammar school for one term. So we'd come home on the Sunday by coach. My mum didn't drive. And I went to school as normal on Monday, came back so excited um, because I'd got an A in my maths test. And I was desperate to tell my mum. And I got in. And my mum looked upset and sad. And so she told me what had happened. And of course, as you'd expect, I was very upset and distraught, couldn't believe it. But the reason why that memory sticks with me was because there was it was so emotionally charged and I was so excited to share this news of this A. And clearly instead got this very tragic news that my father had died suddenly. He'd had a brain aneurysm and so thankfully hadn't been in any pain and had just been um, found the next day when he hadn't turned up for work, sat in a seat reading his book, which he's always loved. So it was clearly very defining. As we know, as I talk about quite often, the transition to secondary school or any transition for a child is quite a big thing. And so there was that huge transition up to secondary school, then marked along with that, with this tragic news of losing your father very very suddenly and in the context of this I guess as a middle child and in some ways someone who was a little mini psychologist I think probably from the age of six when you sort of reflect back on it now my mother had three children all at school all under 18 and had really only moved and emigrated away from all of her family for five and a bit years before her husband tragically dies And so it must have been phenomenally traumatic for her. 
But in terms of why I'm sharing this for you in terms of the experiences that I had as a child was that clearly it was really upsetting. But what I have got very, very vivid memories of are how I handled it and how I managed it. And I think this is why I do what I do. Because for me, on the surface, I appeared a very settled child who was going through the grieving process relatively as expected and was doing doing well and doing okay. And in lots of ways, I I was. But there were a whole load of things that were going on in my head that I want to share with you because I want you as parents not to be listening to this thinking, goodness me, how tragic. But much more, I want you to be thinking that this is likely to be in some shape or form the kind of the narrative that was going on in my head and the stuff that was going on is probably happening a lot to your children so that on the surface your child looks like they're coping with whatever the situation might be that they're that you've got an inkling that might not be quite right and really to encourage you to open those conversations so my father died found out the news on the Monday I went to school the next day as normal um And I don't really have masses of memories other than that people were very surprised that I was at school, given that my father had just died. But it was one of the clear defining aspects of my childhood that I remember was that it was really important just to crack on and just get on with stuff. So there was none of this pandering even before my father died. I don't I, you know, I went to school regardless, unless you had a visible rash like chicken pox which meant you were highly contagious and there was no way that I could be sent into school you went into school if you had a cough a cold a sniffle flu you name it I went in and part of that I suspect is probably being the daughter of a doctor (laughs) and a teacher but there was a lot of that you just crack on and you just get on so there was never in my mind or even in my memories of the fact that once my father died I had to just get on with it you know I had to go into school clearly staff were told and I do remember a pastoral head periodically checking in on me and I was just like oh I'm absolutely fine no problems and so I don't ever remember speaking to a counsellor I don't ever remember really discussing huge amounts of my emotions or how I felt with anyone at school so from a school perspective I looked like a well-adjusted child that was going through the grieving process very well but actually I was a child who was desperate to understand what was going on who wanted to ask questions but it wasn't something that happened and part of that I'm sure is my mother's inherent personality of not necessarily being massively reflective and pouring over things we didn't talk about emotions it was something that we just didn't do but it was something I was desperate to do desperate to talk about things Um, you know, how it felt, what was going on in my head. And I have very vivid memories of not being entirely convinced at one point that my father had really died. So I created a narrative in my own head that actually maybe mum and dad had actually got a divorce, but they didn't want to tell us. So instead they created this, this narrative. And it's, it's not uncommon for children to question trauma and these sorts of tragic things that happen and to begin to create different narratives and different dialogues and again the reason why I'm sharing this is so that you can understand that children desperately need to talk about things they need to understand why 
And sometimes that may be laboring a point. Maybe you feel that you've explained things as much as you possibly can. But for your child, there is always, they're trying to make sense of what happened. Now, one of the reasons that this could have been a prolonged process for me as a child was that I didn't get to go. In fact, none of us went to go to my father's funeral. So my father was then taken his body was taken to Egypt and he was buried there and I suspect it was probably the decision was probably financial Uh, my mother was just widowed she was probably deeply concerned about finances and the thought of paying for three additional flights to Egypt would have been quite worrying for her and I suspect that that was the reason why she didn't do it But there was no discussion, no explanation about it. And because as a family, we just didn't talk about these things, even though I was desperately trying to. There was a lot of unanswered questions that I had. And so there is that part of not getting closure potentially and not actually seeing my father buried that might have impacted this whole idea of then creating these other stories. And and who knows? I mean, I'm reflecting back as an adult in terms of what may well have caused some of this and how it felt from my perspective, but also reflecting back on why the decisions were specifically made by my mother. But what I guess I'm trying to get you to understand is that we often make decisions as parents with the best information that we have at the time, what we think is right for our children. And this isn't about going back and reflecting about what's good and what's bad. I had the most phenomenally happy childhood. I All I can remember is very, very happy times. So I'm not scarred, marked, traumatised by it. But I do reflect on it because obviously being somebody who does what I do, there's always that sort of question about why do I approach things the way that I approach things? Why do I look at practical tools? Why is it that my goal and my purpose isn't just about working with a child, but working with a family? And it's because of my experiences, much in the same way as as you're listening to this, your own personal experiences of your childhood will have a huge impact on the career path that you have chosen on the decisions that you have made in your adult life not only as you as an individual for your career progression and your job prospects but also in terms of how you've parented is so much of what we bring from our childhood then is part of the narrative that then becomes our adulthood so it's really important that we understand that we might view something from a certain perspective, but our child, our friends, our partner may well view things from a very different perspective. So it's about communication and communication is so key because so much on the surface, and I see this so often is that, you know, a family might approach me and talk to me about their child and they'll say, but they're so outgoing and they're so confident and I don't understand so it's this idea that we know as adults, we we don a mask, don't we? We put on our, whether it's armour because we're def- being defensive in a particular situation or an outfit or persona that helps us get through a particular thing or, or a way that we want people to view us as. Our children are no different. So it's about being able to dig deeper, to 
create those avenues in order to have those discussions and to also to be able to understand the dynamics within your family. Now, I clearly am and have always been someone who's very, very reflective. That's clearly part of my inherent personality. So it makes complete sense that I do what I do. But there would have also been other other factors to that. I was a middle child, so there will be an element of that having a factor. I have, you know, my experience of my childhood was very much that I was a good girl. I did what I was required. I was very compliant, never really got into trouble. Well, never got into trouble at school, but was always very, very good. But I also have very vivid memories of feeling very different So I don't remember this coming in at all when I was at primary school, but I certainly remember it coming in at secondary school. So I was tall for my age. By today's standards at five foot nine, I'm not really very tall at all. But at that point, I remember being very self-conscious of my height and I certainly wasn't the tallest in my class. I was very self-conscious of my frizzy curly hair. Growing up in the 80s, frizzy curly hair just absolutely wasn't the fashion. There was a lot of back combing and a lot of hair flicking but there certainly wasn't frizzy curly hair. All I wanted was to look like everybody else. I wanted to have straight hair that could be flicked into a Farah Fawcett, Charlie's Angels style. So much so that my mother decided to help me. She cut me a fringe and um, she straightened it. Now, back in those days, we didn't have good hair day, GHD hair straighteners. We just had my mother's old fashioned sort of wooden handled metal comb that you put on the hob to heat up and then as you put it through your hair you've got that kind of singeing (laughs) sort of sound and the smell of burning hair which she did bless her she made me she cut me this fringe she straightened my hair I had this phenomenal flick that I was so incredibly proud of as I was cycling into secondary school like oh my god I'm gonna look like everybody else Uh, and it rained and it just obviously didn't work bit of moisture And it just went completely afro. And I just remember being so gutted. So, you know, I don't, I have very vivid memories of feeling very uncomfortable in my own skin, very different. And add to that, where I was raised was very white middle class. You know, my sister and I and my brother looked different. We were very dark by comparison. I mean, really not very dark when you look, when you sort of look at it. And you compare us now, but we were very dark. And I remember being very aware that the colour of my skin was very different to others. And just generally feeling very awkward and not particularly attractive or beautiful. And just just not being particularly comfortable in my own skin. And so when you think about all of these sort of combinations, it wasn't something that I necessarily talked about. Because as I said before, it wasn't something that we did as a family, not that there were any challenges in having conversations. As I said, I've had a very wonderful childhood and I've got the most phenomenal relationship. I was very fortunate enough to have a really wonderful relationship with my mother, as did my children as well. But it was just emotions, talking about emotions and how things felt wasn't something that we did actively as a parent. And so you have to look at that whole background in terms of the way that I was raised and understand that that has bound to have informed the way that I have parented as a mother. So I have very open 
communication with my children we talk about everything so much so that I think I probably drive them mad and they have often said mummy we don't have to talk about this so I've probably potentially gone the extreme other way but it's about understanding how our childhood experiences create the narrative that then becomes the story that we tell because obviously I've shared with you some very personal details of my own childhood and my own upbringing and how it felt as a child and so that was my experience but as you know when I've talked about this idea of the sort of the mental health and the well-being seesaw it's all about how your child views things and as parents we need to listen up we need to open those lines of communication we need to shift ourselves out of that pattern that gets frustrated with the why is my child not doing x y and z and actually what is going on so for me I was academically and my mother and I have talked about this often academically I was excelling I was you know seen as gifted and talented by all accounts I had some phenomenal score at the 11 plus when I went to my secondary school and it all went downhill now whether it all went downhill after my phenomenal A that I was so excited to tell my mum about when I came home after my father died or not who knows but something happened and yet nothing was ever probed why is that what support might need to be in place that's a dramatic shift in the way that somebody is and so much so that for those who don't know my story specifically my GCSE results which were O levels back then were diabolical I went to a a selective grammar school you're expected to excel and do well back then you took nine O levels I took nine. Um, I actually ended up with five. I had to retake my chemistry because I took chemistry for A-level. So I ended up with six. All C grades. So this is not what you would expect from somebody who was deemed as really bright and really capable. And then I failed my A-levels really quite spectacularly. Not even like a little bit of a fail, but phenomenal fail. So again, this is not to say oh gosh isn't that awful her father died and then everything went downhill that's not necessarily the case and I'm not entirely convinced that my academics were specifically linked to that but there was clearly when we look at the whole picture of this idea of someone who felt really awkward in their skin didn't feel massively confident felt different and yet there was no probing there was no questions asked there was no let's discuss this what's going on for you what's showing up how are you feeling there was none of that and part of that obviously is the, the the sort of the background in terms of the characters of my mother and how she was in terms of raising and being somebody that wasn't necessarily somebody who really massively wanted to talk about things that had happened in the past or how things were. She was very much living in the present, something I'm not always great at doing myself, not always in the moment, but always reflecting on the past or looking to the future. So it's not about that I've raised my children better than my mother has because that absolutely isn't the case my mother's phenomenal but what I'm trying to get you to think about as a parent because I can give you that perspective of a child as I'm sure you can when you reflect back on your own but I can do it hopefully in a relatively objective way given what I do in my experience is I can really look at it and say there were clear markers that things were not quite right that there had been a shift 
and nothing phenomenal because don't forget the wheels didn't fall off for me and this is what's really important the wheels didn't really fall off okay yeah I failed my A-levels but that's not really I'd already got I'd already managed to secure a job I wasn't going to go to university so it wasn't that there was anything wrong I never have a men- I never had a mental health issue I didn't have anxiety depression I've had none of that I've had on the surface a very straightforward sort of experience of losing a father but it not impacting but of course as we know everything impacts we have a big argument with a best friend that has an impact we get made redundant from a job that has an impact we have an argument with someone in traffic that has an impact so all our experiences have an impact but what I want you to see as a parent is that you can have a child who is on the surface not having any particular challenges but you're noticing there's just something not quite right and what I really want you to what I guess I want to emphasize from my own journey from my own personal experiences how crucial childhood is and how crucial it is that we keep talking about emotions we keep trying to help our children understand that it's okay to be upset by something and that it's okay for them to feel that it's a big deal and then to talk to them about what might be a good set of changes to put in place in order to help them it's really if 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 I leave nothing my legacy and obviously when you get to 52 you start thinking about legacies but you know if my legacy if what I leave behind is a narrative a dialogue a lasting memory that I have encouraged parents to have more conversations and to shift their perspective to looking at things from the child's perspective because when you look at my situation let's say specifically from the academics you know my mother could have taken a stance of being a very frustrated parent that was just saying why the hell is my child lazy they're not doing their homework particularly well they're getting poor grades and just approached it from that perspective of the education really rather than scratching under the surface which is really what was needed as to what's driving this shift in pattern why what is it emotionally how does that child feel what's going on with their confidence that might be impacting their desire to be the best version of themselves children don't actively wake up and say do you know what I'm actually not going to do any work I'm going to be deliberately difficult to my parents I'm deliberately going to answer back I'm deliberately going to get myself into trouble we have to remember that those behaviors are driven by emotions and those emotions come from a belief system that they have about who they are and what is expected of them and so this is what I really want you to take away from this very personal journey that I've shared with you is what is it that my child's behavior what are the emotions behind that what's showing up for them why are they feeling that this is the only option that's available to them because children aren't inherently bad and difficult and obnoxious and bloody minded and all the other things that we tend to think about even whether this is your you know your two-year-old who's having a massive tantrum about something or refusing to go to bed we need to look beyond we need to ask those important questions that say that there is a belief system there 
that is driving patterns of behavior? And how might I be able to support my child? How might I be able to help them shift that? And you are, as their parents, the most equipped to see those changes. School don't always see those changes. You know, when I talk about my own story, on the surface of it, I was a well-adapted, popular, well-liked. I took part in lots of after-school activities. The only thing that school would have been able to have picked up on was that I wasn't doing as well academically. And because on all other levels, I seemed to be very well adjusted. I was in the school gymnastic team. I must have done an after-school activity four out of five days. So in all of those typical social measures, and I guess even emotional measures from a school perspective, there was no reason for them to question anything other than she's clearly not working hard enough. But as parents, we are well equipped because we get to see how our children truly are. And for those of you who are listening, I'm sure there's a lot of you that are sitting there thinking that you quite often are a bit worried about your child, but your school never see any of that. So they think that maybe you're worrying unnecessarily. But we have to trust our instincts as parents and we have to create opportunities to have conversations. Now, those deep conversations that we have with our children, obviously, if you're not somebody who's massively comfortable with this, it's not something that you do naturally, then part of it is a learning journey for you. What do you need to look at from your own childhood? What do you need to reflect on? What work might you need to do as a parent for your own childhood journey in order for you to be best equipped and prepared to help your child? Because we're all, our childhood is so phenomenally important at the conversations that we have with ourselves, the belief system that we end up having as we then go into our adult life and the stories that we tell ourselves that then affect the choices and the behaviour that we have, the choices we do in terms of career prospects or conversations that we might have with people or friendships that we might have or opportunities that we may or may not take because of our belief system. And we bring all of that into our parenting. So when we're looking at supporting our children, we also need to look at what support might we need to give ourselves in order to be best equipped in order to help our children. So if we've not, if we find having those conversations with our children difficult, then we need to reflect back on why that shows up for us and what might we need to do in order to find this as something that that we're a little bit more comfortable with because we need to have those conversations with our children. We need to help our children understand their own belief systems and how that might be affecting things. If you've got, when we talk about siblings, we often talk about this idea that children take on various different roles. When I think of my own childhood, you know, I was that, I was always the compliant, you know, easygoing, appeaser, middle child, you know, in so many ways. I couldn't be any more middle child than I was. But that then means that whilst I was always looking to appease people and making everybody happy, that goes with you, doesn't it? Because your belief system is that it's actually much more important that everyone else is happy rather than you actively seeking what you want. So, of course, that's going to have an impact. It's going to have an impact in terms of my childhood and how I put myself forward for things. But it's then going to have an impact as an adult. And that will be the same for your children. Their belief systems come not only from 
their interactions with their peers and how well they do academically, but in terms of the dynamic at home. And, and siblings have such a huge impact on that that, as I say, if I can emphasise, I feel like I probably rambled on a little bit about this, but I think it's so important. And this podcast episode has completely been unstructured, unscripted, because I wanted it to be as genuine to how I felt on the day that I recorded it as possible. Because if I recorded this a week later, a month later, three months later, a year later, then obviously what I choose to recall, not because I've been selective, but just what gets called to mind changes. And I think that's the biggest thing that I really want to sort of, the you know, the lasting memory I want you to have from this particular episode is that I want you to recognise that as a child, they experience the world very differently to us. And our children often present as very happy and confident, as very adjusted, when there's often a whole load of other things that are going on. And that's not to say that we need to be concerned about every child, but I do think we need to have conversations with every child. We know that one in six children has a probable diagnosable mental health issue, and that we know it takes on average 10 years for a child to get the right treatment. And it may be that you don't have a child that has an issue, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be having these conversations. We shouldn't be communicating with our children. We shouldn't be having conversations about our emotions and how it impacts us. Because if my story tells you anything, it tells you that even with the tragedy of losing my father when I was 11, on the surface, I was a very happy, well-adjusted child. And in lots of ways, I have had no profound impact from that my mental health has always been intact I've always been socially very capable I've always had lots of friends and a really great support network but it's clearly impacted me because the narrative that I recall having as a child was one that wasn't that questioned lots of things that was desperate to have conversations And if that has happened to me, then there will be lots of children in a very similar situation that we don't really know because we've not scratched under the surface, we've not probed, we've not had conversations, who may also be just feeling not not quite their best selves. And that's where I would really love you as parents to really see that as part of a pro- it's as, as part of what you do as parents but also as a real key priority this idea about connecting with our children being emotionally available not being afraid to talk about our own emotions not being afraid to reflect on our own childhood and what that may bring up what that might trigger and being more ready to have open and honest conversations more of us need to do these sorts of things and for those of my friends who know me, nothing that I've shared today is anything that they don't already know. But this is something that I've thought was really important for me to share with those that follow me and those that are interested in the way that I work and how I work, because it's so integral to why I do what I do and why I choose to do it the way that I've chosen to do it. So I do hope that you've enjoyed listening to that. 
And if my story has made you reflect as a parent and you're now wondering whether your child might need some help from you, but you just don't know what that help might be, then don't forget my free resource library, drmaryhand.com forward slash library, where we would have loaded up a link to a free quiz. So in my experience, the three main challenges our children face, and they are interlinked anyway, but the three main challenges are either managing their emotions or lacking in confidence or managing anxiety. And what the quiz will do is it will help you identify which area you should be focusing in on first. And what it will also do is give you some free resources so you can get started on what might be the priorities and what you might need to do to help your child. All you literally need to do is you go to drmaryhand.com forward slash library. It will ask you for your email address and then that will give you access not only to the link for the free quiz, but all of the resources from all of the podcasts that I've got. So as ever, if you have enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could follow and review this podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time. Bye.